0: Uh, this past week, uh, I've had a heavy rotation of that Mariah Carey Christmas album. Uh, Christmas season is upon us. If you're a Luther Vandross Christmas fan, that's, that's all good, too. There's room for disagreement in this, in this body of Christ. Hey, we're about to get into the Word for today, and I'm really excited. Um, the conversation that we're going to have today is probably one of the most profound and important for me to hear, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it as well. Uh, we're going to have uh, scriptures on the screen. We'll be reading 1 Peter 5. 1 through 10, um, if you can take out your phone or you can read alongside on the screen. And it reads, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Give, uh, make sure you guys give a round of applause to my brother, Lawrence Aja, who's going to share God's word with us today. Lawrence has been, Lawrence has been an OG at Renaissance ever since day one, and make sure you show him some love, y'all.
1: Good morning, Renaissance. All hey. right. I stole that tryptophan from the turkey. Good morning, Renaissance. Good morning. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your house. We thank you, God, that you invite us in it. We thank you that for every single person in this room, there are rooms for all of us. We pray, God, that your message, God, reaches us, God, that ultimately through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, you speak to us each in our individual, unique way. You love us, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' right and only name, amen. Amen, Renaissance. Uh, so uh, I need to, we're going to have a conversation, and I need us to have a conversation. By a show of hands, how many people love raccoons? Like, two of y'all, all right, we, we all need Jesus here, but in particular, you certainly need Jesus today. Um, my thing is, uh, I really don't like raccoons. Like, I really, really don't like raccoons, because raccoons, they're not cute. They're not like Bright Bear from the Care Bears. Remember Bright Bear from the Care Bears? I'm dating myself a little bit, but no, raccoons are not Bright Bear from the Care Bears. Uh, raccoons are these large, rabid animals with long fangs and teeth. You know, who, like, would render the, the world's hardest gangster like, like, defenseless in one. And I really don't like raccoons. And it's not like I have anything against raccoons, but it seems like they have something against me, right? So uh, a few weeks ago, I was coming back from 125th Street Station, and uh, I was walking home. It was about 11, 1130. And I was coming down Frederick Douglass, and I'm walking past Angela Harlem. And right when I was walking past Angela Harlem, this large, holiday, well-fed raccoon comes five feet in front of me, and I'm, I, I'm chicken up. I'm looking at the raccoon, it's looking at me. We're just looking at each other, and it literally gets on hind feet, Renaissance. It gets on its hind feet, and it scampers across the street like it was late for a meeting at the Harriet Tubman statue. And I'm like watching it, I'm watching it, you know, from a from a from a distance, and I'm like, all right, cool. I could live through that, but a week later, I traveled to San Diego for some meetings, and uh, you know, I stayed in a hotel, and you guys know those hotels where the door's are on the outside? It was actually on a golf course, so the door's on the outside, I'm on the second floor, right? And so it was about 11.30, it seems to be that's raccoon time, right? So I'm coming back to the hotel, it's dark, and I'm walking past, and literally by my stairs are garbage cans. Five feet in front of me, this, again, large, holiday, well-fed raccoon scampers in front of me and literally heads right to the garbage. And I'm like, I'm looking at him, I'm like, I'm going to let him finish, right? So it literally gets on high feet, it's scurrying through the garbage, and I'm waiting 20 minutes, y'all. I watch that thing, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to walk past that thing. And literally, it scurries off, I head up to the stairs, I get in my room, and I just made an executive decision, like, I was going to run these trails this morning, but clearly the raccoons own this place, so I'm not going to run, I'm not going to do this. But I'm a type of person who learns their lesson. I learned my lesson, y'all. So the, third, so the next day, I came back, but the, what was worse was that the light by the stairs was not working, y'all. It was 11, 11.30. I knew it was raccoon time. And I was like, you know what? I make a beeline to the front desk. I was just like, bump this, right? So I went to the... I was like, hey, hey, sister. there's a nice little sister that's was like, hey... Um, if little homie comes back, like, I could call you, and she's kind of like, uh, you can call me, but I ain't going to do anything about it. <laughs> just, just like, you know. Um, but if he seems like he's a little aggressive, because they get aggressive, it's like that it sometimes. I'm like, oh, so you know he gets aggressive? They're like, yeah. Um, if he doesn't seem like he's going away, I'm going to call Wildlife Removal Services, because they have somebody who is trained to come and deal with the raccoon problem. Now, uh, I get anxious, right? I am particularly get anxious about raccoons, not just because they're scary. One, they're scary, right? You guys remember that photo? They're scary, but also because... I'm ill-equipped to deal with raccoons. Like, that's not, in my, that's not something I was trained to do. My name's not Crocodile Dundee, that's not something I wake up in the morning like I can't wait to look at raccoons, right? But the other thing is that for us, it's not just raccoons, it may be other things we're ill-equipped to do. Like, we have some issue, problem with our, our house, our apartment, we're not handy people. So we go anything that happens behind the walls with electrical or anything like that, we're like, yo, I ain't Bob Vila, so I'm going to call the the contract, I'm going to call the landlord because we recognize we are ill-equipped to do certain things in our life. And what's interesting is that when it comes to our own anxieties, the anxieties in our life, the things that weigh us down, we feel we're more equipped to deal with them than we really are. And let me define anxieties. Anxiety is a feeling of unease or nervousness for something with an uncertain outcome. a.k.a. AKA like everything in life, like everything but like death and taxes is something that it has an uncertain outcome. And I'll give you an example, right? Um, I am anxious that the only home I'll be able to afford in New York is made of gingerbread. Like that is my anxiety, (laughs) you know? I've always wanted a brownstone, you know? Like I've always wanted one. And so that's literally what I'm anxious about, right? Uh, But seriously, uh, uh, we're anxious because uh, we cannot see or control the future. We cannot control what happens to us yet we live lives as though those things are within our control and there's only one for which that is true and that's God and that's God's job to see that yet we are comically ill-equipped to do it yet we try to do it every single day Um, I really want to be clear and say something about anxiety there are two types of anxiety one is a medical condition Uh, the other is a spiritual condition and there are many brothers and sisters in this room who are dealing with real medical Anxiety and I want to be clear with y'all. We are not asking you to simply pray it away That is not what we're asking you to do nor are we saying that this message is somehow a replacement for prescribed Medical regimen that you have but what we are saying for other brothers and sisters your anxiety is not medical It's spiritual and it's as a result of taking on carrying anxieties that you were never equipped to carry now um, I want to be clear. Now, why, are, why do we struggle with that? Why is that something that's difficult with us? Uh, I'll say there's a few reasons. One, uh, we live in an individualistic culture, a culture that says, you know, we celebrate and champion the self-sufficient people, right? And so ultimately, when we think about casting our anxieties on, on God, it's not necessarily instinctual to us, right? The second thing uh, that we wrestle with is just uh, the actual scripture, the core scripture we're talking about, Cast all anxieties on him because he cares for you. It may sound like another case of Christian impractical theology, right? Like, here comes Christianese again. Like, okay, I lost my job. Cast all anxieties on him because he cares for him. Okay, anxieties. Like, like, what do you do with that? And for many people, it's frustrating when you hear people use scriptures for things where you don't really know how to draw the connection. And the third thing, and I think is the biggest thing uh, that we struggle with and what makes it difficult for us to understand this, the heart of the scripture is pride. Pride. And I'm not talking about positive pride. I'm talking about pride that is the predominant theme in the Bible, the pride that comes before destruction, uh, the one that uh, sets down kings. I'm talking about pride, which is the opposite of humility. A great uh, definition of pride is an individual who shifts ultimate confidence from God to themselves. Pride is an individual who shifts ultimate confidence from God to themselves. Pride says, I got this. Humility says, he got this. Pride says, I came up. Humility says, God came through. Shout out to my boy Kofi on them hats, right? But pride also says, I could do life alone. I'm good by myself. Humility says, I need people. I need God, and I need people. And sadly, I could relate to uh, feeling like I could go through life and do things on my own more than I'd like to admit, more than I'd like to admit, because I'm the king of refusing help when I really need it. I am the king of refusing help when I really need it. Um, I was in a season, I was an entrepreneur for many years, and I was in a season of great financial abundance. I was making a lot of money and doing extremely well for myself. And then I shifted my career and things changed. Like it got so bad where I really looked at like Costco samples as a cost-effective lunch option. I'm like, yo, well they do the meats at noon. So if I go there, you know, like that, that's how I really thought, uh, <laughs> that's how things were really tight. And so when I was thinking about how to pay my rent or how to pay bills or how to pay my student loans, right, I'm like, I'm I'm nearly 30 at that time. I said, man, I don't want to call my parents or my friends. I knew I had friends and family. If I literally just even lifted my voice to say I need help, they would have taken the shirts off their back. But I heaped up anxiety on myself because I had too much pride. But it wasn't just that. Me, of all people who literally dedicated my life, the past decade of my life, to really sharing and recovering the spirit of hospitality, traveling around the world, hosting dinners, and hosting people at my house almost every single week. Uh, Last year, I was traveling to seminary, and weekly I would make a 10-hour commute in one day. I would come from New York to 45 minutes northeast of Boston. And I would do it in one day, and some days I would stay overnight, some days I would not. And there was a time when I was really struggling, just I I wasn't, I didn't really, couldn't really afford to pay for another hotel to stay over that night, and I couldn't afford to stay on campus that night. And I had classmates who knew what I was doing, and were like, yo, stay with us, stay with us, we don't want you to make that trip, and I'd stay maybe once or twice, but this time I was extremely tired, and I literally fell asleep behind the wheel going down 95 South, and I literally almost took, I almost lost my life, right? And I almost lost my life because I was proud, and it was a literal, and it was a figurative wake-up call. And what I did not realize, surely God was trying to care for me through other people when I fell asleep behind the wheel. It was my pride. And the scary thing about pride uh, is that ultimately it makes us shift our confidence. We think that we could do more than we really could do. Now, uh, there are a few reasons why this passage and what we're talking about is particularly important. I want to speak to the heart to y'all. We're in the holiday season, and I love the holiday season. It's a season where, for us, it's such a joyous time to reconnect with family, uh, to eat good food and bad food, right? It's a great time, but for many of us, as joyous as it is for many of us, it's actually one of the most difficult times of the year for many of our brothers and sisters in this room, because it often reminds us of the people who are no longer with us. So if there's any time in in the year that we could ever talk about care and God's care, it's now. It is now. Now, the scripture that we're looking at is 1 Peter 5, the whole chapter of 5. And uh, usually when pastors use this scripture, they talk about this from the context of the the church office of eldership. So you use this to describe a major church office and how that operates. But uh, the spirit of the scripture often gives us a good, beautiful picture of God's care, both in its content and its contributor. And its contributor is Peter. And if any of you remember Peter, Peter is uh, one of the disciples, he's one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, whose life was marked by bold failures. Um, one of the all-time failures that many people do remember is that Peter was the guy who, when Jesus said, you know what, I need to, I need to, be, you know, to die, I need to go to the cross, I need to leave you guys, he was kind of like, uh, Jesus, I'm your dude to the very end. I'm not going anywhere. Papa, I'm not leaving. That was him, right? And so ultimately, he took this, thing, this whole bold, prideful stance, and then everybody knew what happened when things hit the fan, when things got really serious. Peter ultimately said, denied Jesus three times when the rooster crowed, and we remember him for that. And if you were with us a few months ago, our our brother uh, Chris talked about how God changed Peter through his major failures. And the common foundation of many of the failures, and there are many failures beyond that, is pride. The foundation was pride. And if there's anyone in the Bible that could talk about pride, it's Peter. Now, that's what we're talking about today, pride. Pride that makes us take on and carry more than we're ever equipped to carry. And the scary thing about pride, as I says, is that it makes us shift ultimate Confidence from God to ourselves, but it also makes us do other things. It makes us forget who God is, who we are and what we are. a family of God that is, a family that is cared for by God and one another. Again, pride makes us forget who God is, who we are, and what we are. a family that is cared for by God and one another. Who is God? God is a shepherd. The shepherd is an image of the shepherd is so predominant without the Bible,' it's through so predominant. But just our core scripture that we're looking at, 1 Peter 5 and 7, cast all anxieties on him because he cares for you. Many people have different translations of that. You may have in your Bible, it says cast your cares on him because he cares for you or cast your burdens on him. But what's interesting to note and what you need to really understand is that the word for God's care and our anxieties are two different words. I don't get too technical with the biblical Greek, but the actual word for God's care is the word mellow. And the word mellow means of interest. It is of interest. And the word for our anxieties is marimma. And marimma means our worries, our burdens, our sorrows, our concerns. And so what this scripture literally means is that God takes interest in your anxieties. God takes interest in your anxieties. But again, we look at this picture of the shepherd. And this, the shepherd is, again, a predominant, uh, predominant image. Uh, God is Lord, uh, God, God is Father, he is Alpha, Omega, but he's also shepherd. And it was also used to describe Moses as well as David, but predominantly it's used to describe God and the Messiah. And what is a shepherd? A shepherd is one who feeds, who cares for the flock. He cares for the flock, and he cares for the flock by feeding the flock, by protecting the flock, and by directing the flock. Right, and when we oftentimes we look at the rod and staff of a shepherd and think that this is some sort of a authoritarian, domineering relationship, but that is not the picture of the great shepherd. That is not the picture of the shepherd that Peter is talking about. It's not the picture of the shepherd that God's talking about. Which is why in First Peter two and three, First uh, Peter five two and three, uh, Peter goes on to say, uh, "Shepherds, be those who are eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted in- to you, but being an example to the flock." Now, God, through Jesus Christ, was the ultimate example of the good shepherd. A little earlier in verse 5, Peter shares, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And many commentators will agree that uh, the clothe yourself is actually hearkening to Jesus when he actually put on a servant's robe to wash the disciples' feet. We also see in John 10 and 14, uh, God is described as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, which points us to the cross and the lengths to which God will go to care for us. And when I think about this, sometimes I think about my mom. Well, growing up, my mom always used to say to us, we used to get so annoyed, she'd be like, I would walk naked for my kids to get an education. I would walk naked, <laughs> right? And like, we, you know, and my mom had the universal like mom uniform or like the, the bathroom with the one button, you know what I'm saying? So like when people come over, like, mom, come on, like, and we're like, yeah, we trust you, mom, that you would, you walk naked for us, right? We trust you. But, but truthfully, it is just giving the picture that she's saying, I'm willing to humble myself so that you guys can get that education. And we believe that. And that's ultimately a picture of God that he is willing to fully humble himself, to care for us, right? Um, and it is, it is particularly difficult for us when uh, we feel angst, anxiety and, and difficulty when we feel like we can't pay the rent, uh, when we worry about whether we're gonna get the next job or when we worry about whether or not we're gonna be married or whether we can conceive kids. Typically, when we start to get anxious, we wanna take the wheel from God because we feel like God is not caring for us in the way that he should, or that God is asleep at the wheel. And he really isn't. Um, 25 years ago, this is 2017, uh, this actually marked the 25th anniversary of a relationship marriage cult classic. Uh, It's called Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And so it came out in 1992, and the basic premise of Five Love Languages is that people communicate love differently. right? So whether your language is acts of service, gifts, uh, quality time, touch, words of affirmation, if my love language is different than yours, you may be communicating love, but I'm not receiving it. So for many of us, we feel like we have this battle with God, like a love language, like, God, you say you care for me, but I'm not receiving it the way I want to be received, right? So you need to get on my page and love me and care for me the way I want to because I'm feeling anxious. And the reason why we often feel that is because we equate having a lack of anxiety-producing circumstances to care as opposed to having an anxiety-assuming God to care. And the second reason that we actually struggle with that concept is because It's hard. We don't give God nearly enough credit for our care, our everyday care. We wake up in the morning, we get our food, we have great friends. For many of us, if you ask anybody in this room, when's the last time you've been cared for? You probably could think about somebody who did something for you, something kind, someone. But do you give God credit for that? Or do you give yourself the credit and say, you know what, that's because I just have hitters in my team. They're really good friends. They hold me down. I pick them well. Like, was that really you? Was that really you? Or was that God? Or God, the master orchestrator, the creator of the universe, created and orchestrated for that person to care for you so you remember that he's here and he's with you. And so when we look at the scripture, cast all anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be clear. God is recognizing the presence, the inevitability of anxiety. He's saying cast all anxieties. So God is saying, Peter is saying, anxieties will be there. But just as I know that there's an inevitability of anxiety, I'm giving you the inevitability, the unwavering presence of my servant heart, I will be taking on every single anxiety whenever it comes. I'll be with you with that, with that anxiety. So please remember that. Uh, the other thing that we need to think about and remember is, uh, remember who we are. We are sheep. And I'm just going to come out and say it. Sheep are not the sharpest animals in the kingdom. They're not the sharpest animal in the kingdom, and so it makes me cringe to even think that I'm being associated with a sheep, and for me, it's actually particularly triggering as a Nigerian child, because when we got in trouble, we were called some version of, like, sheep or goat. Like, you didn't clean your room, you lazy goats, right? Like, you like, dang, dad, we goats now, you know, like, and so when I see, you know, like, Lawrence, you're a sheep, biblically, I'm just like, I'm still working through the reference point that I have in my house, right? Uh, uh, but, but seriously, uh, the, the sheep is fully reliant upon the shepherd, fully reliant, meaning for his survival, for, for their care it needs to stay close to the shepherd and needs to stay close to other sheep to be protected. And the message there is that uh, we are really not good at caring for ourselves. Uh, a few weeks ago, Ruth Whitman, uh, you know, author of America the Anxious, uh, wrote a New York Times article called Happiness is Other People. Happiness is other people, Um, and ultimately what she says is that in our search for happiness, we actually do the exact opposite of what would make us happy. We actually isolate and focus inward. She says, in an individualistic culture powered by self-actualization, the idea that happiness should be engineered from the inside out rather than the outside in is slowly taking on the status of a default truism. This is happiness framed as a journey of self-discovery rather than the natural byproduct of engaging with the world, a happiness that stresses emotional independence rather than interdependence. She goes on to say, and according to research, if we want to be happy, we should really be aiming to spend less time alone. Despite claiming to crave solitude when asked in the abstract, when sampled in the moment, people across the board consistently report themselves as happier when they are around other people than when they are on their own. Surprisingly, this effect is not just true for people who consider themselves extroverts, but equally strong for introverts as well. And this follows much counseling research for the counselors in the house or anyone who's received counseling. Uh, There's a major family of origin issue that people deal with, that's abandonment. And for many people, you understand a major response, a consistent response for people who struggle with abandonment is to push people away. To push people away. When the great desire that you have in your heart is for people not to leave. And so the clear thing not only just from research, but from just if we're honest with ourselves, we're really not good at caring for, one, uh, caring for ourselves. And again, the picture of sheep are animals that, when are faced in danger, they actually do the exact opposite of what would actually make them safe. They panic. And ultimately, the shepherd, when they're faced with the wolves, wants to keep the sheep close to him. Because he knows if they stay close, if they're bunched in a group, that they are most protected. But sometimes there's a sheep who ultimately feels that they could take care of themselves, and they panic, and they scatter. And they scatter, and it makes all the rest of the sheep scatter. And that's exactly what the wolf wants. The wolf wants them to scatter because it's easier to actually attack that sheep when it's away from the the pack. Now, what's interesting is that it may seem hard for us to draw the connection, like, how does that manifest ourselves in in our lives? Well, it may manifest itself by believing that a podcast is actually the replacement for Sunday gathering. It may manifest itself by believing that the pastor's inbox is a replacement for working through your anxieties in community. Because we believe that it's easier to separate from the pack and we could better care for ourselves apart from it. Which is why Peter calls them in verse 8 and 9 to remain strong in the faith. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, the truth is we are limited in our ability to care for ourselves, but we're even more limited in our ability, our ability to perceive of our limitations. Um, in Good Faith, uh, the book Good Faith, uh, it cited a Barna study which said 89%, 89% of Americans believe the number one cardinal sin that you could, that you could uh, attack somebody with is saying that they can't do something. So if I tell you that you can't do something or you have limits, it literally causes real, real angst. And because it goes against our new moral code, which is the self-fulfillment moral code, which means that everything is possible. I have no limitations. Nobody could place any limitations on me, right? And uh, let's be clear, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with believing that all things are possible. But what I am saying is that it is very dangerous to believe that all limitations are fictional. Very dangerous. Just think about it. Imagine if all things, the outcome of your life, really weighed on what you did. Imagine if every single thing you did, the person that you should have forgiven, or uh, if, I made a le- if I make a left on Frederick Douglass, or if I make a right, if I wear a red shirt or not, if I do that, if I don't, imagine if all of that really netted out how your life would, would become. You would be trapped in anxiety. You wouldn't be able to get out of the bed in the morning because it would be so weighty. And what the scripture, what our scriptures are telling us is that there is freedom, there is liberation, and there is honor in being a sheep. Now David, King David, conqueror of Jerusalem, one who defeated Goliath, basked in the glory of being a sheep. In Psalm 23, one through four, one of the most popular scriptures that is shared, he says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He lead me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Pride tells us that we are too good to be sheep. But scripture tells us that we are too loved and too valuable not to be. Remembering what we are. A family. These are real statistics in a world where nearly one in four people live alone. One in five people suffer from chronic loneliness. And every single day, every single second, people in this room and outside of this room are fighting battles that you would never even imagine. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, in this holiday season, when we come back and we're so exuberant, when there are people who feel so lonely, so broken, and need deep, deep care, how well, Renaissance, how well are we caring for one another? How well are you caring for other people? And how well are you being cared for? Now, something that you could really gloss over if you really rush past the scripture is that when Jesus restored Peter the first thing he says after he said, when he responded to, do you love me? He said, feed my sheep. Now in this entire scripture, we have Peter talking about elders and under shepherds, people who he ultimately is enlisting and and, and, and encouraging to care for the flock. So what's clear is that God enlists and empowers other people to care for us. Now that may seem so simple, like, okay, I get that. I understand that God enlists other people to care for me. But it's because a lot of times our faith seems like this me and God faith, like God only sends down spiritual care packets when we need help, right? And that ultimately we all, the only experience of God is that it's this burning bush moment where it's just me and God in the corner. And again, I'm not saying that God is the center, God is the source, and God is the first that we should look to. But if you believe that that is the only way God works, then you will be deeply uncared for because you'll resist and you'll push away people, Right? There's a story called The Drowning Man. You may have heard about it, uh, and it's a story, and uh, the, the picture of the story of The Drowning Man is that there's a guy who, there was a flood, and he was drowning. And uh, a person comes by in a rowboat and says, hey, you know, you're know, you drowning, let me help you out. And he's just like, I'm praying to God, uh, I have faith, he will save me. And he waves him off. And then another person comes by in a motorboat and says, hey, you. Know, let me help you out, you're really, really drowning. And he's just like, no, uh, You know, I, I, I have faith, I'm praying to God, he's gonna save me. The motorboat goes off. And then the last person comes in a helicopter and is just like, wow, like it's, at, it's up to your neck. Let me help you out. He's like, no, I have faith. I've been praying to God. He's going to save me. <laughs> Homie drowns. <laughs> Homie drowns. <laughs> and then on the story is that we get a picture on the other side where he's doing a debrief for God and he's frustrated. He's confused. He's like, God, like, I prayed. I did everything you asked me to. I prayed. I had faith. Why didn't you save me? And God comes to me and he's just like... I sent you a rowboat, I sent you a motorboat, and I sent you a helicopter. What else do you want from me? And I think for us, we actually experience and we struggle with actually receiving God's care because we think that he's only going to work in one way, directly with us, as opposed to through other people. So ask yourself, who could God be sending right now in your life that you're pushing away? Who? And who could you be? Who are you called to care for right now? Now the truth is, Throughout Scripture, God throughout history uses imperfect people to bring about the perfect plans in each of our lives. Imperfect people. He uses Peter of all people to shepherd us. Now, if you remember, a part of the responsibility of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. If you know anything about sheeping, I'm not sure in Harlem if you know anything about sheeping, uh, you know, or like being a shepherd, but it, is, it calls you to graze your sheep. And grazing the sheep is making sure that they are being fed, by you know, they're eating the plants. Now, thing about plants. Not all plants are good. Some of the plants are poisonous. And so in order for the shepherd to do its job, it has to be close enough to see the actual plants that are going in the sheep's mouth. The implication of that for us is that many of us don't feel cared for because we don't live transparently, intimately. We are not known to people enough for them to actually care for us. If people do not know the poisons that are going into your life, if people don't know the anxieties that are happening in your life, there is no way for them to care for you. And we really, really, really struggle with that. This is why Peter in verse 9 implores us resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And it's easier to undergo suffering when you're not alone. Still, I want to acknowledge that people are difficult. Doing community with people is difficult. Usually a lot of our anxieties arise as a result of people who hurt us, who judge us, who abandon us, and who reject us. And so you may say, you know what, I'm not really dealing with people because people are difficult to deal with. And I certainly, certainly understand that. Uh, one, of, one of the great pastors, uh, A.R. Bernard, used to say, uh, an empty stable is always clean. And for us, it usually means no people, no problems. But what we, don't, we fail to realize is no people, you got a new problem, right? You feel alone. You feel really, really alone. And the hard thing that we're called to do and the solace that we get as followers of Jesus Christ is that, We have a follower, we have a king who could relate. We're in the Advent season. Jesus Christ came down to invite us into his family, but he wasn't well received. Yet he still pursued us, even after having to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And I think it's important for us to really remember that we need to stay connected. One of my good sisters and good friends' wife Sybil Amuti, wrote a guest blog post the other day uh, titled, What to Say to a Friend Struggling with Depression. And it was such an amazing article, and it was enlightening uh, for me. Uh, but one of the things that she stressed as a headline was that it's difficult. People, people, when people are hurting, they often hurt the people who are trying to care for them the most. But it is so important for us as a family to stay connected. She says, I've learned that I could be present as a friend and not be consum- become consumed with the pressures that are mounting in their lives. It is never easy to be an anchor for your friends while they expose their pain and struggle but your presence can be the difference between life or death. Equally for Peter, he knew that their care for one another was essential given what they were facing. They had to stay connected, which is why the scripture calls us to a greater awareness of responsibility for one another. In Galatians 6.2, it calls us to carry each other's burden, and in this way you will fulfill the lawful Christ. In God's family, we are both sheep as well as shepherds for one another. So how do we respond? Before Peter's, great, uh, before Peter's great denial, Jesus, in, in John 13, 34 to 35, uh, before that, he actually comes down and he washes the disciples' feet. And then he gives them a new command. The command is, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In each of the first four chapters of Peter, he literally says, love one another in each and every chapter. Now, I don't want you to get nervous. I'm I'm not going to ask you to wash people's feet unless that's what you do. Like, I'm not going to ask you to do that uh, at all. Um, But what I am asking you to do is to be the church more than an attender of one. You could take one small step this week, whether it's somebody in your community group, somebody in your friendship group that you've not connected with recently, or the person who actually invited you to come out today. Ask them, what are you most anxious about today? And then ultimately share that with them and, and pray. And the prayer is not just to, you know, I, and create and actually write it down. One of the things that is helpful is I create the notes, and in my notes I have prayer requests and responses. Not just prayer requests, responses, because you should pray not only for their need, but pray about how best you can respond to them as a brother and sister. And if you're struggling with this, there's a great framework that I like to use. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love Framework. And listen, it says ask and hear the need. Learn means pursue understanding not solutions. Love, be patient. When somebody is hurting, deeply hurting, it requires patience. It requires you to see their pain even when they're scratching at you and be patient with them. Be kind. Being kind may not mean that you solved their problem but you could encourage them writing a letter, sending them a text saying, I'm thinking about you, taking them to their, their favorite coffee shop. Be kind and be persistent. Follow up with them. Remind them that you are on their heart you are on their mind. And Christ's love should compel us to do this because of what he did to show it to us. And love does not envy, love does not boast, and love surely is not proud. And I'm grateful, we should be grateful, that even in the many ways that we fall short in our ability to obey God for this large command to love one another, that we have a Father, that we have Jesus Christ, who ultimately, in his humility, literally made himself a servant, obedient to death, even death at the cross. Peter intimately knew how much Christ's love covered over a multitude of sin. He knew it very, very well. So when Jesus Christ was restoring him and said, do you love me? In that very moment, he felt that that symbolized Jesus Christ, his love covering each and every one of his denials. And in that moment, him as well as all of us experienced the good news. Peter recognized who God was, a great shepherd who gives his life for us the sheep, who fed us like a great shepherd with his body broken for us, who protected us with his blood shed for us, and who directed us with his arms outstretched for us at the cross. And he recognized God in his great love and mercy invited us into the great work of what we are, a family that is known for our care for God and one another. A family, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, whose eternal crown of glory was made possible by Jesus Christ's twisted crown of thorns at the cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, we give you thanks, God, that we ultimately do not have to carry our burdens, do not have to carry our anxieties, God, that ultimately when you hung on the cross, when you carried your body, you carried our anxieties along with it. We thank you, Father God, that we are given, not just you, not just the Holy Spirit, that we are giving a family of God whose blood, whose thick blood that connects us is yours. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' right and holy name. Amen.
0: Amen.